Alexa Deal. And I'm Ryan. Deal. Deal. <laughs> the star of the show. And welcome back to Murder in the Mountains. This week's case is, I feel like, kind of interesting. I don't, we've never really had like a kidnapping case before. I mean, so I'm going to go on a limb here and say there's, this one has a kidnapping. This one has a kidnapping in it. Gosh, I'm good. You're getting really good at this I'm true really crime this. thing, babe. Yeah. Yeah. So much like improvement from episode one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So this week's case takes place in Golden, Colorado, which is a city very close to the Rocky Mountains. So Adolf, also known as Aid or Ad, I guess that depends on if you say Adolf or Adolf, either way. Adolf Kors III was born on January 12th, 1915 in Golden, Colorado. He attended the Phillips Exeter Academy in New Hampshire, Um That probably means nothing to you as it did me. So let me give you a little background on that. The Phillips Exeter Academy was founded in 1781 and is a highly selective boarding school for grades 9 through 12. And it is known as one of the most prestigious boarding schools in the world. That's pretty interesting. Um, He then went on to graduate from Cornell University, where he was the president of the Quill and Dagger Society. Does that mean anything to you either? No. Me either. So (laughs) that is one of the most prominent honor societies that there is, just like of all the honor societies. It's the most. The Quill and... Dagger Society. Quill and Dagger. Only secret societies. Is he a Freemason too? Rule one of Freemasons. Don't talk about the Freemasons. Right, right, right. So as... He was a third? Yes. I feel like we've had this before. Juniors or the thirds or something? No, juniors are the second. Thirds are the third. I know the difference between (laughs) me and Jack Wagon. I'm saying (laughs) in this show, there's been others. Yeah. 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 And we actually have another one in this story. So So there's a theme here. It's probably incest. If you're a junior or a third, you're in They're trying to keep a pure bloodline. It's like those I don't know that that's what that means. Really dumb show dogs. Like they look good, but they're stupid. Yeah. Yeah. For someone awards. Okay. Okay. I digress. So as you can see, Adolf Kors III was really set up for success. In 1940, when he was 25 years old, he married Mary Grant, and the couple went on to have four children together. Also, if you haven't thought about it yet or even paid attention, Adolf Kors III was the heir to the Kors Brewing Company empire. So he's like, okay. Kors, Kors. Kors, Kors. Kors, Kors. So he never really wanted to work in the family business. His dream was to own a cattle and horse operation. And his brother, Bill, said that he wanted to be a violinist. But they both ultimately ended up working at the brewery, despite Adolf being allergic to beer. What a loser. Much to his father's dismay. (laughs) (laughs) What a bum. Yeah. So in 1960, he was the CEO and chairman of the board for the brewing company. So from 1940 to 1960, nothing really eventful happened. You know, he's just living his married life. He, you know, ended up like owning a ranch and living on it, but he wasn't really a rancher. He was a brewer. Just 20 boring years at a brewery, huh? Yep. Just your run of the mill, happy wife, happy life. So we're going to just go ahead and jump right to February 9th, 1960. Uh, That morning started out as most. 45-year-old Adolf woke early to work out. Then he showered and got ready for work, joined his wife at the kitchen table for coffee. Just a pretty solid morning. They lived on a horse ranch. So after coffee, he went to feed the horses before heading to work at 7.55 a.m. Ads, aids. Normal 12-mile route to the brewery had been closed for construction since January. 
So he had to detour along a gravel road for four miles to Turkey Creek Canyon, where it connected to a state road that led back to Highway 285, which is the normal road that he would take. So he just kind of had to detour to get back to where he would normally go. Okay. Later that morning, a milkman noticed that a car was blocking a road along his route. So he got out of his truck to try to move the car. Is this on the detour? Yes. Yes. On the de- like on the more back road. road. Okay. Yep. So as he was moving the car, and they just said this very nonchalantly, like the milkman's just moving cars by himself. So yeah, no biggie. <laughs> milkman's good at a lot of things, I guess. Huh? Yeah. Milk <laughs> milk is good for the bones, strong bones, you know, healthy uh. muscles. So as he was moving the car, he noticed a red brown stain on the bridge and in the car, and that there was a hat on the riverbank below the bridge. So upon his discovery, the milkman immediately notified the police. Once the police were alerted, this became the largest manhunt since the Lindbergh kidnapping. Are you familiar with the Lindbergh kidnapping? Of course I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so synopsis is uh, Charles Lindbergh. He was like the first guy to fly the airplane across the Atlantic or something like that. His um, son was kidnapped out of their home. Like somebody put a ladder up to the baby's room, climbed in the window while they were home, like asleep. Kidnapped the baby. Baby was either never found or found dead. One of the two. Hmm. Yeah. And it's like a big deal because Charles Lindbergh was like a big deal. So, like and it. also a big deal because the baby was kidnapped out For of his some, own bedroom. I was thinking of the Wright brothers. That's the last thing uh, I remember about planes. Yeah. Were they just the first ones to fly out of North Carolina or something? Yeah. Kitty Hawk, I believe. Yeah. And then you have Amelia Earhart. I thought um, she just floated. She was in a hot air balloon, wasn't she? No. She, she actually flew. flew. She flew. But like she disappeared. Like I don't I don't think she was like ever found. Hmm. Yeah. Rough times in airplanes back in the day. So like I said, this was super high profile because of how well known the Chorus family was. So Adolph's father went to the FBI director J. Edgar Hoover himself and told him to find his son, like today. That's what Coors did? Yeah. Coors the second. The Coors second. Jr. Okay. Yeah. He went, you know who J. Edgar Hoover is, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay, I'm going to keep asking you <laughs> because I've had to fill you and everybody else in on a lot of things. Well, you can't make assumptions, so that's a good thing. Yeah. You got the most ignorant person about history, apparently, on the podcast. So. No, not there about history, just about like crime. Murders. Yeah. So hmm. you're pretty well versed in history, I would say, but maybe not the crime of history. That wasn't yeah. Genghis Khan and <laughs> the other Adolf Hitler. Yeah. So that guy. Okay. So police soon found out that Coors had left for work that morning, but had not been seen since. The hat on the riverbank was identified as Coors's, but no other evidence was found. Later that day, Adolf's wife, Mary, received a typewritten ransom note demanding 50, or I take that back, demanding $500,000 in 10s and 20s for her husband's return. That would be a crap ton of cash. In the 60s? I'm just talking about $500,000 in 10s and no, 20s. A, but yeah, that would be a crap ton of money in the 60s, too. I wonder what that would equate to. But they should be filthy rich. If you're the third. Right. Yeah. You don't have Yeah. Just I mean, his dad and... basically said, like, the kidnapper has one thing I want, my son. Like, the cost is secondary. Like, he was ready to pay whatever. Yeah. So, she was told, call the police or FBI, and he dies. Cooperates. He lives. The no also told her to place an ad in the Denver Times for a tractor and wait for the call. So that's like they're how they were going to communicate. So with the help of the police, she placed the ad, but it went unanswered. During the investigation, police and the FBI interviewed neighbors and passerbys and focused their search on finding a canary yellow mercury that had been seen in the area around the time of the kidnapping. 
One witness remembered the letters AT and the number 52 being somewhere in the license plate. Couldn't remember if it was AT, 52, 52, AT, you know, whatever the sequence was. But I mean, at least that's something. And Mm -hmm. they even thought to get that information. So they ended up finding the car torched in a dump all the way in Atlantic City, New Jersey. So that made some distance from Colorado to New Jersey. Why were they suspicious of this vehicle? Because it had just kind of been seen. It wasn't like like neighbors didn't know who it belonged to in small town, okay. 60s. You know, they're like, this doesn't belong to anybody. So who is it? Okay. Somebody up to no good. So um, upon finding the car, they identified the owner of the car as a man named Walter Osborne. The third? No third. Mm. No junior, just straight up Walter Dang. Osborne. So it turns out that Mr. Osborne had moved out of his apartment the day after the Coors kidnapping. Coincidence? Bum, bum, bum. I think not. They also found out that before Walter Osborne disappeared, he had purchased a gun, typewriter, and handcuffs. Not surprisingly, the typewriter was the same brand as the one used to write the ransom note. So the FBI dug into Walter's past and found out that at his previous job, he had a life insurance policy who designated a man named Joseph Corbett as a beneficiary. So what do they do next, babe? They go talk to Joseph Corbett. They go talk to Joseph Corbett. Upon talking to him, they discovered that Walter Osborne was actually his son, Joseph Corbett Jr. Oh, I knew it. I was all over You called that from the first sentence. Man, you're so good. So once his identity was confirmed, Joseph Corbett Jr. was placed on the FBI's 10 most wanted list, and he was described as the most wanted man since John Dillinger. Dillinger. We know about John Dillinger, don't we? I know about that guy. I've heard of him. Yeah. We saw where he was killed. We did. In Chicago, right? Yeah, on a Chicago crime tour. That was pretty cool. They like let us get out of the bus. And I mean, I guess that's kind of weird, but they're like in this alleyway right here. He was like turned in by a girl he was with Mm -hmm. or something like that. Yeah. So the FBI were there waiting for him. So there were no leads on his whereabouts and also no leads as to where Coors was. So the case officially went cold. They had nothing. That was until September 11th, 1960. So about seven months later, when hikers discovered articles of clothing, a pocket knife that was engraved with the letters AC3, like Roman numerals three, and also skeletal remains, which were later identified as Adolf Coors III. Obviously, his body was completely decomposed after being left in the elements for seven months, but bullet holes found in the shirt and jacket with the remains determined Coors had been shot in the back. Twice. This was also confirmed by a medical examiner analyzing his shoulder bin. So now we know what happened to Coors. Let's take a look at who did it to him. Shall we? We shall. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. So, Joseph Corbett Jr. was born on October 25th, 1928. He graduated from the University of Oregon and was a Fulbright Scholar. Do you know what a Fulbright Scholar is, babe? No, I guess it's really cool, though. Tell me how cool it is. Okay. So, I didn't know what it was either, so I looked it up, and it said, uh, the Fulbright program is considered the largest and most prestigious educational exchange program, providing recent college graduates, graduate students, and young professionals the opportunity to continue their education or professional development through research and study in a foreign country. Pretty cool. Pretty cool. Pretty sharp guy then, huh? Yes. Very happy that you just said that because it, uh, he also had a 148 IQ. Oh, I was just looking at these the other day. So for it's reference... Like- one percent on that. Anything above one hundred and thirty is considered high. Yeah. And Einstein's IQ was one hundred and sixty. So here's twelve points off Einstein. 
Yeah, 148 is insanely high. Like that's, yeah, that's nuts. So he was very, very smart. By all accounts, he was totally normal until his mother had an accident and fell from a balcony in the family home and died. Then he just became unhinged. Because he did it. He didn't do it. Do you know? Nobody said he did it, so I guess I don't know definitively, but he was never charged with it. He said he didn't, so you believe the other killer that he didn't well, kill his mom? I would mom? say that it was, yeah. okay. Here how, we how go. gullible are you all of a sudden? <laughs> he said he didn't do it, so I mean, yeah. Must not have. Must not have done it. Yeah. It's just the way this works. So six months after her death, he was charged with shooting a hitchhiker in the head in California in 1951. <laughs> just because? He said it was self-defense. Okay. Hate when that happens. Yeah. So Um, But he was sentenced to life in prison and placed in a maximum security prison. That was in 51? Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So due to good behavior, a few years later, he was sent to a minimum security prison where in 1955, he escaped. Nice. So is this giving you Booker Baker vibes? Slap on the wrist? Da-da-da-da. A little bit. But I was kind of thinking prison break for some reason. Or prison break. So he was literally a fugitive for five years before he murdered Adolf. Under what was his other name? Walter Osborne. Walter Osborne. Yeah. So like a year after he escaped, a man named Walter Osborne came to Denver. But it's crazy that he literally, like he was a fugitive for five years. He just flew under the radar. That's insane mm-hmm. that he was able to do that. And then he tries and he goes and he does something so as high profile as kidnapping a well-to-do family's grown son. Yeah. For ransom. Do we know why? For he ransom. Just, he just wanted the money? He just wanted the money. Yeah. What did he do... For a career, for five. I mean, what was he doing to make a living? He was obviously um, living there. He had to do something. Yeah, I'm not sure, but he did have a job because that's where he had that life insurance policy. Yeah, like the beneficiary. So if they had no transferred him from maximum to minimum security, he Adolf probably, I can't say with certainty, but probably would not have been murdered. Yeah. Okay, so let's get back to the murder. Once Corbett Jr. had been identified and placed on the most wanted list, his face was plastered everywhere. And everyone was on the lookout, obviously. An owner of a boarding house in Canada called the police to let them know that a man matching the description was staying at her place. The FBI immediately headed there, and on October 29th, they knocked on his door. What do you think happened? He started shooting. Um, He killed himself. So, there was no fighting or resisting. Uh, Way off. (laughs) Yeah. Boring. (laughs) Corbett said to them, I give up. I'm the man you want. You didn't have to give up. I found you. Like, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. You didn't just turn yourself in, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> we yeah. we cocked you. <laughs> uh, during the trial, the prosecutor had to rely heavily on circumstantial and forensic evidence since there were no witnesses. I mean, some people like saw the car, but nobody saw the act itself, you know? Yep. So I feel like this was super cool for the 1960s, in my personal opinion. Um, I might not be giving them enough credit and this may have been totally normal for back then. And I just think it's like the stone age or something. For what? Uh, I'm about to tell you. So they took a look at all the dirt and, you know, stuff under, under the canary yellow mercury. And they found dirt and particles matching those in the Atlantic city dump where the car was found burning. And another sample contained pink feldspar and granite, which are the kind of rocks and minerals found at the site where his body had been found. Mm. That's pretty cool, right? That's pretty cool. It was what? the 60s, though. You are not giving them a whole lot of credit. Yeah, okay. But. I feel like forensics still weren't, like, all that. Yeah. Yeah, you're, I don't yeah, know. Maybe. Frequency. 
my favorite movie, movie oh, yeah. took place like half in 99, half in the 60s. And they kind of, but yeah, like the 99 guy, he was like telling his dad like, oh, this hasn't been invented yet, but trust me, send like, give me your wallet and I'll get the fingerprints off of it. Yeah. And you're like, ooh, fingerprints. You know what I mean? Yeah, babe. But I mean, I guess they looked at it under my like magnifying glasses and stuff. But anyway, I found that it was fascinating. <laughs> magnifying glasses, maybe a microscope. Even. No, no, no. I'm talking about like <laughs> fingerprints. <laughs> <laughs> like we know exactly what kind of rock this is. They got out their Somebody, monocles. Yeah. Grab me my monocle, Benjamin. <laughs> While huffing on a pipe, and it's like Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> Jeez, oh, Pete. This took a turn. Okay. Anywho. So it turns out that Corbett had planned this whole thing for weeks and was watching and learning Adolf's daily routine and his route to work. On the morning of the kidnapping, Corbett parked his car and pretended to be broke down, knowing that Adolf would ask for help. He really banked a lot on that. Offer help. What did I say? Ask to help. Yeah, like ask him if he can help. What if he just drove by? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like he was really banking a lot on him, like actually stopping instead of being like, oh, I'm late to work. Gotta go. So as Adolf approached Corbett's car, he did just that. He offered to help and Corbett accepted his help. Corbett got out of his car, but left the engine and radio running, thinking he'd be right back. But um, as Adolf approached, Corbett stepped forward and drew his gun, taking Corbett by surprise. As Corbett came closer, the six foot one, 185 pound Adolf Corbett grabbed Corbett's hand that held the gun. The two were almost identical in height and weight, so they struggled. You know, nobody really overpowered the other one. Adolf shoved Corbett backward, and they slammed against the bridge railing. Adolf's baseball hat and Corbett's fedora fell into the creek. I saw that, and I was like, he would be wearing a fedora. Yeah. Adolf then pushed Corbett away and made a run for his car. But Corbett, seeing his ransom trying to escape, extended the gun and fired. Twice. Into the back. And killed him. And then still sent the ransom letter, right? Mm-hmm. Knowing. Knowing he was already, already dead. dead. Mm-hmm. Of course. But then would. it went unanswered anyway. So what's interesting to me, now that you brought that up, is that they were ready to pay. Mm-hmm. So why didn't he just take the money? Yeah, he told him to put the ad, and then he never responded. Right. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe so I he guess he was were... like, well, this got... I but got, they were got. trying to set him up because they were working with the cops yeah. then. So maybe he Assumed had a bad that. feeling. He's like, I'm about to get busted. And yeah. just I mean, he's very smart. So he's like, I'm just going to cut my losses. And mm. he made it all the way to Canada, which is insane. That's where they found him was in Canada. So I don't even know how he crossed the border unless he got there so quick before they like identified him, you know, yeah. which is crazy. I don't know how far away Colorado is from Canada, but I mean, relatively close. Mm-hmm. But he was in New Jersey, kind of think of it. He drove from Colorado to New Jersey, but still, that's that's closest. Yeah, it's probably still not that far. Yeah. Get across the border. So, a jury found Corbett guilty of murder on March 29th, 1961, and was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole. Possibility of parole after he's already killed one person and escaped to prison? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. So, 19 years later, in December 1980, he was released on parole. Super. Super. Let's see where this goes. Um, Somewhere, I hope. So, literally, as you already mentioned, he's murdered two men. Mm-hmm. Shot them. Yes. Both. One in the head. One twice in the back for no reason but money. Escaped from prison and evaded the police for five years. And cross borders. And cro- Yeah. That's got to be worth cross something, Cross right? borders. And only after 19 years, he was released on parole. Bananas. Babe. So, that was in 80? Yeah. 
wonder how old would he have been then? Like he was born 60s. in the twenties, right? Yeah. Or almost sixty. Yeah. I'm proud of myself for knowing that. Great job. So he maintained his innocence the whole time and claimed that the FBI framed him. Really? Even after was it just one of the FBI guys quotes that said, You got me? I'm the guy you want. Right? Like I guess that wasn't evidence, right? Because there's no yeah, yeah, recording yeah, yeah. or anything. So that was just one of the That's what agents. they said he said. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But like, oh, they set you up when they didn't even know where you were for five years? They wouldn't even have to set you up. They just pick you up and take you back to prison. Yeah. This isn't a Stephen Avery making a murderer situation here. Like they just pick you up because you are who you are. A fugitive. And then they just take you back to prison. They don't need a reason. Why would he even think they would be trying to set him up? I think that he didn't think that. And he just said that because he <laughs> wanted to pretend that he was innocent. Knew he was busted. Yeah. So he ended up working as a truck driver for the Salvation Army and lived a very quiet life, not killing anyone else that we know of. The look on Ryan's face is like, you freaking kidding me? I wanted him to Something not else. necessarily kill more people. Yeah, I didn't but didn't anyone else to die, but I thought it was going to take a spicy turn. And no spicy turn. The spicy turn was the fact that he was released on parole. That's pretty And spicy. literally should not have been. There should have been no possibility of parole. But even if there was, you go before the parole board and they're just like, you've probably changed. You didn't change the first time because five years later you killed somebody. But this has been 19 years, so you probably did change. Mm -hmm. I mean, he got out on good behavior the first time, so maybe he was just the model inmate. So? I mean, no, I agree. (laughs) But maybe that's what they're thinking. Exactly. So on (laughs) August 29th, 2009, the body of 80-year-old Joseph Corbett Jr. was found dead in his apartment from a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. So he killed himself? When he was 80 years old. What a bum. What a loser. 29 years after he got out, he killed himself. It makes no sense. And they said that he was pretty much like a recluse. Like he didn't really go out a bunch. He didn't talk to his neighbors. Unless it was just guilt over the years or right. something. But he's innocent, so. Yeah, but if you claim, well, obviously, he's just <laughs> saying yeah. that. But. Yep. So that's it. That is the story of the kidnapping and murder of Adolf Quartz the third heir to the Coors Brewing Company fortune. Very interesting. Very interesting. Nice uh, job, babe. Thank you. I was like, how have I never heard of this before? I feel like yeah. this would be pop culture, like fun fact. Anytime you see somebody drinking a Coors, you know, you're going to be like, did you know that Adolf Coors the third was kidnapped and murdered by Joseph Corbett Jr.? And I want you to say that, babe, next time you see somebody drinking a Coors. I will. Which, which one was allergic to beer? He was. He Adolf was. was, yeah. I drank enough for him and me both in college. So there you go. Done my part. He's like, I don't even want to freaking be here. I just want to raise horses and cattle and be like Yellowstone. Before Yellowstone. Before was Yellowstone like. was Yellowstone. And his brother was like, I just want to be a violinist. I just want to mind my own business and play the violin. But they're both like, okay, I'll just work for the family business. I can live on a ranch and play the violin in my spare time. But either yep. way, it's crazy. A not so fun fact, fun fact. But I'm just, I was surprised. I hadn't heard of it either until I. I'm surprised you haven't heard of it. Yeah. I just, Very I'm surprised it's just not more pop culture-y. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. Very interesting. That's it. So y'all know the drill. If you can follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google, all the places. Follow us at Murder in the Mountains on Instagram and at Murder in the Mountains on TikTok. Join our Facebook fan discussion group. And talk about your theories, your thoughts, how bananas this was, um, and everything. And we thank you so much for your support. And we'll see you next week for another episode of Murder in the Mountains. See ya. Peace. Bananas.